Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z Podcast is a daily program that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax, and enjoy as you fall asleep. Published in 1851, Moby Dick was based in part on author Herman Melville's own experiences on a whale ship. The novel tells the story of Ahab, the captain of a whaling vessel called the Pequod, who has a three-year mission to collect and sell the valuable oil of whales at the behest of the ship's owners. If you enjoy our program, please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's three Z's dot media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZ Media Podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by the Sleep Channel on Spotify. Chapter CXV The Pequod Meets the Bachelor And jolly enough with the sights and the sounds that came bearing down before the wind some few weeks after Ahab's harpoon had been welded. It was a Nantucket ship, the Bachelor, which had just wedged in her last cask of oil and bolted down her bursting hatches, and now, in glad holiday apparel, was joyously, though somewhat vaingloriously, sailing round among the widely separated ships on the ground, previous to pointing her prow for home. The three men at her masthead wore long streamers of narrow red bunting at their hats, from the stern, a whaleboat was suspended, bottom down, and hanging captive from the bowsprit was seen the long lower jaw of the last whale they had slain. Signals, ensigns, and jacks of all colors were flying from her rigging on every side. Sideways lashed in each of her three basket tops were two barrels of sperm, above which, in her topmast cross trees, you saw slender breakers of the same precious fluid and nailed to her main truck was a brazen lamp. As was afterwards learned, the bachelor had met with the most surprising success, all the more wonderful for that while cruising in the same seas numerous other vessels had gone entire months without securing a single fish. Not only had barrels of beef and bread been given away to make room for the far more valuable sperm, but additional supplemental casks had been bartered for from the ships she had met, and these were stowed along the deck and in the captain's and officer's staterooms. Even the cabin table itself had been knocked into kindling wood, and the cabin mess died off the broad head of an oil butt, lashed down to the floor for a centerpiece. In the forecastle, the sailors had actually caught and pitched their chests and filled them, it was humorously added, that the cook had clapped a head on his largest boiler and filled it, that the steward had plugged his spare coffee pot and filled it, that the harpooners had headed the sockets of their irons and filled them, that indeed everything was filled with sperm except the captain's pantaloons pockets, and those he reserved to thrust his hands into in self-complacent testimony of his entire satisfaction. As this glad ship of good luck bore down upon the moody Pequod, the barbarian sound of enormous drums came from her forecastle, and drawing still nearer, a crowd of her men were seen standing round her huge tripods, 
which, covered with the parchment-like poke or stomach skin of the black fish, gave forth a loud roar to every stroke of the clenched hands of the crew. On the quarterdeck, the mates and harpooners were dancing with the olive-hued girls who had eloped with them from the Polynesian Isles, while suspended in an ornamented boat, firmly secured aloft between the foremast and mainmast, three Long Island Negroes, with glittering fiddle bows of whale ivory, were presiding over the hilarious jig. Meanwhile, others of the ship's company were tumultuously busy at the masonry of the triworks, from which the huge pots had been removed. You would have almost thought they were pulling down the cursed Bastille, such wild cries they raised, as the now useless brick and mortar were being hurled into the sea. Lord and master over all this scene, the captain stood erect on the ship's elevated quarterdeck, so that the whole rejoicing drama was full before him and seemed merely contrived for his own individual diversion. And Ahab, he too was standing on his quarterdeck, shaggy and black, with a stubborn gloom, and as the two ships crossed each other's wakes, one all jubilations for things past, the other all forebodings as to things to come, their two captains and themselves impersonated the whole striking contrast of the scene. Come aboard, come aboard, cried the gay bachelor's commander, lifting a glass and a bottle in the air. Hast seen the white whale? gritted Ahab in reply. No, only heard of him, but don't believe in him at all, said the other good-humoredly. Come aboard. Thou art too damn jolly. Sail on. Hast lost any men? Not enough to speak of two islanders, that's all, but come aboard, old hearty, come along. I'll soon take that black from your brow. Come along, will ye? Marries the play, a full ship and homeward bound. How wondrous familiar is a fool, muttered Ahab, then aloud, thou art a full ship and homeward bound, thou sayest, well, then, call me an empty ship and outward bound. So go thy ways, and I will mine. Forward there. Set all sail, and keep her to the wind. And thus, while the one ship went cheerily before the breeze, the other stubbornly fought against it, and so the two vessels parted, the crew of the Pequod looking with grave, lingering glances towards the receding bachelor, but the bachelor's men never heeding their gaze for the lively revelry they were in. And as Ahab, leaning over the taffrail, eyed the homeward-bound craft, he took from his pocket a small vial of sand, and then looking from the ship to the vial, seemed thereby bringing two remote associations together, for that vial was filled with Nantucket soundings. Chapter CXVI The Dying Whale Not seldom in this life, when, on the right side, fortune's favorite sail close by us, we, though all adrope before, catch somewhat of the rushing breeze, and joyfully feel our bagging sails fill out. So seemed it with the Pequod. For next day after encountering the gay bachelor, whales were seen and four were slain, and one of them by Ahab. It was far down the afternoon, and when all the spearings of the Crimson Five were done, and floating in the lovely sunset sea and sky, 
Son and Will both stilly died together, then, such a sweetness and such plaintiveness, such unwreathing orisons curled up in that rosy air, that it almost seemed as if far over from the deep green convent valleys of the Manila Isles, the Spanish land breeze, wantonly turned sailor, had gone to sea, freighted with these vesper hymns. Sooth again, but only sooth to deeper gloom, Ahab, who had stern off from the whale, sat intently watching his final wanings from the now tranquil boat. For that strange spectacle observable in all sperm whales dying, the turning sunwards of the head, and so expiring, that strange spectacle, beheld of such a placid evening, somehow to Ahab conveyed a wondrousness unknown before. He turns and turns him to it, how slowly, but how steadfastly, his homage rendering and invoking brow with his last dying motions. He too worships fire, most faithful, broad, baronial vassal of the sun, oh that these two favoring eyes should see these two favoring sights. Look! Here, far waterlocked, beyond all hum of human weal or woe, in these most candid and impartial seas, where do traditions no rocks furnish tablets, where for long Chinese ages, the billows have still rolled on speechless and unspoken to, as stars that shine upon the Niger's unknown source. Here, too, life dies somewhere's full of faith, but see, no sooner dead than death whirls round the corpse, and it heads some other way to. Oh, thou dark Hindu half of nature, who have drowned bones hast builded thy separate throne somewhere in the heart of these unverdured seas, thou art an infidel, thou queen, and too truly speakest to me in the wide slaughtering typhoon, and the hushed burial of its after calm. Nor has this thy will somewhere turned his dying head, and then gone round again, without a lesson to me. Oh, trebly hooped and welded hip of power! Oh, high-aspiring, rainbow jet, that one strivest, this one jettest all in vain. In vain, O whale, dost thou seek intercedings with yon all-quickening sun that only calls forth life, but gives it not again. Yet dost thou, darker half, rock me with a prouder, if a darker faith. All thy unnameable unminglings float beneath me here, I am buoyed by breaths of once living things, exhaled as air, but water now. Then hail, forever hail, O sea, in whose eternal tossings the wild fowl finds his only rest. Born of earth, yet suckled by the sea, though hill and valley mothered me, ye billows are my foster brothers. Chapter Xvii The Whale Watch the four whales slain that evening had died wide apart, one far to windward, one less distant, to leeward, one ahead, one astern. These last three were brought alongside ere nightfall, but the windward one could not be reached till morning, and the boat that had killed it lay by its side all night, and that boat was Ahab's. The wave pole was thrust upright into the dead whale's spout hole and the lantern hanging from its top cast a troubled flickering glare upon the black, glossy back and far out upon the midnight waves which gently chafed the whale's broad flank like soft surf upon a beach. 
Ahab and all his boat's crew seemed asleep but the Parsee, who crouching in the bow, sat watching the sharks that spectrally played round the whale and tapped the light cedared planks with their tails. A sound like the moaning in squadrons over asphalt heights of unforgiving ghosts of Gamora ran shuddering through the air. Started from his slumbers, Ahab, face to face, saw the Parsee, and hooped round by the gloom of the night, they seemed the last men in a flooded world. I have dreamed it again, said he. Of the hearses? Have I not said, old man, that neither hearse nor coffin can be thine? And who are hearse that die on the sea? But I said, old man, that ere thou couldst die on this voyage, two hearses must verily be seen by thee on the sea, the first not made by mortal hands, and the visible way of the last one must be grown in America. Aye, aye. A strange sight that, Parsee, a hearse and its plumes floating over the ocean with the waves for the pallbearers. Ah, such a sight we shall not soon see. Believe it or not, thou canst not die till it be seen, old man. And what was that saying about thyself? Though it come to the last, I shall still go before thee thy pilot. And when thou art so gone before, if that ever befall, then ere I can follow, thou must still appear to me, to pilot me still, was it not so? Well, then, did I believe all ye say, O my pilot? I have here two pledges that I shall yet slay Moby Dick and survive it. Take another pledge, old man, said the Parsee, as his eyes lighted up like fireflies in the gloom, hemp only can kill thee. The gallows, ye mean, I am immortal then, on land and on sea, cried Ahab, with a laugh of derision, immortal on land and on sea. Both were silent again, as one man. The great dawn came on, and the slumbering crew arose from the boat's bottom, and ere noon the dead whale was brought to the ship. Chapter XVI The Quadrant the season for the line at length drew near, and every day when Ahab, coming from his cabin, cast his eyes aloft, the vigilant helmsman would ostentatiously handle his spokes, and the eager mariners quickly run to the braces, and would stand there with all their eyes centrally fixed on the nailed doubloon, impatient for the order to point the ship's prow for the equator. In good time the order came. It was hard upon high noon, and Ahab, seated in the bows of his high-hoisted boat, was about taking his wonted daily observation of the sun to determine his latitude. Now, in that Japanese sea, the days in summer are as fresh as of effulgences. That unblinkingly vivid Japanese sun seems the blazing focus of the glassy ocean's immeasurable burning glass. The sky looks lacquered, clouds there are none, the horizon floats, and this nakedness of unrelieved radiance is as the insufferable splendors of God's throne. Well that Ahab's quadrant was furnished with colored glasses through which to take sight of that solar fire. So, swinging his seated form to the roll of the ship 
and with his astrological looking instrument placed to his eye, he remained in that posture for some moments to catch the precise instant when the sun should gain its precise meridian. Meantime, while his whole attention was absorbed, the Parsee was kneeling beneath him on the ship's deck, and with face thrown up like Ahab's, was eyeing the same sun with him, only the lids of his eyes half-hooded their orbs, and his wild face was subdued to an earthly passionlessness. At length the desired observation was taken, and with his pencil upon his ivory leg, Ahab soon calculated what his latitude must be at that precise instant. Then falling into a moment's reverie, he again looked up towards the sun and murmured to himself, Thou see Mark, thou high and mighty pilot, thou tellest me truly where I am, but canst thou cast the least hint where I shall be? Or canst thou tell where some other thing besides me is this moment living? Where is Moby Dick? This instant thou must be eyeing him. These eyes of mine look into the very eye that is even now beholding him, I, and into the eye that is even now equally beholding the objects on the unknown, the other side of thee, thou son. Then gazing at his quadrant and handling, one after the other, its numerous cabalistical contrivances, he pondered again and muttered, foolish toy. Baby's plaything of haughty animals and commodores and captains the world brags of thee, of thy cunning and might, but what after all canst thou do, but tell the poor, pitiful point, where thou thyself happenest to be on this wide planet, and the hand that holds thee, no, not one job more. Thou canst not tell where one drop of water or one grain of sand will be tomorrow noon, and yet with thy impotence thou insultest the sun. Science. Curse thee, Thou vain toy, and cursed be all the things that cast man's eyes aloft to that heaven whose live vividness but scorches him, as these old eyes are even now scorched with thy light, O sun. Level by nature to this earth's horizon are the glances of man's eyes, not shot from the crown of his head, as if God had meant him to gaze on his firmament. Curse thee, thou quadrant, dashing it to the deck, no longer will I guide my earthly way by thee, the level ship's compass, and the level dead reckoning, by log and by line, these shall conduct me, and show me my place on the sea. I, lighting from the boat to the deck, thus I trample on thee, thou paltry thing that feebly pointest on high, thus I split and destroy thee. As the frantic old man thus spoke and thus trampled with his live and dead feet, a sneering triumph that seemed meant for Ahab, and a fatalistic despair that seemed meant for himself, these passed over the mute, motionless Parsi's face. Unobserved he rose and glided away, while, awestruck by the aspect of their commander, the seamen clustered together on the forecastle, till Ahab, troubledly pacing the deck, shouted out to the braces, Up helm, square in. In an instant the yard swung round, and as the ship half-wheeled upon her heel, her three firm-seated graceful masts erectly poised upon her long, ribbed hull, seemed as the three Horatii pirouetting on one sufficient steed. 
Standing between the nigh heads, Starbuck watched the Pequot's tumultuous way, and Ahab's also, as he went lurching along the deck. I have sat before the dense coal fire and watched it all aglow, full of its tormented flaming life, and I have seen it wane at last, down, down, to dumbest dust. Old man of oceans, of all this fiery life of thine, what will at length remain but one little heap of ashes? I cried stub, but see coal ashes, mind ye that, Mr. Starbuck, see coal, not your common charcoal. Well, well, I heard Ahab mutter, here's someone thrusts these cards into these old hands of mine, swears that I must play them, and no others. And damn me, Ahab, but thou actest right, live in the game, and die it. Chapter CXIX The Candles Warmest climbs but nurse the cruelest fangs, the tiger of Bengal crouches in spiced groves of ceaseless verdure. Skies the most effulgent but basket the deadliest thunders, gorgeous Cuba knows tornadoes that never swept tame northern lands. So, too, it is, that in these resplendent Japanese seas the mirror encounters the direst of all storms, the typhoon. It will sometimes burst from out the cloudless sky, like an exploding bomb upon a dazed and sleepy town. Towards evening of that day, the Pequod was torn of her canvas, and Bearpold was left to fight a typhoon which had struck her directly ahead. When darkness came on, sky and sea roared and split with the thunder and blazed with the lightning that showed the disabled masts fluttering here and there with the rags which the first fury of the tempest had left for its after-sport. Holding by a shroud, Starbuck was standing on the quarterdeck, at every flash of the lightning glancing aloft to see what additional disaster might have befallen the intricate hamper there while stub and flask were directing the men in the higher hoisting and firmer lashing of the boats. But all their pains seemed not. Though lifted to the very top of the cranes, the windward quarter boat, Ahab's, did not escape. A great rolling sea, dashing high up against the reeling ship's high teetering side, stove in the boat's bottom at the stern and left it again, all dripping through like a sieve. Bad work, bad work. Mr. Starbuck, said Stubb, regarding the wreck, but the sea will have its way. Stubb, for one, can't fight it. You see, Mr. Starbuck, a wave has such a great long start before it leaps, all round the world it runs, and then comes the spring. But as for me, all the start I have to meet it is just across the deck here. But never mind, it's all in fun, so the old song says, sings. Oh, jolly is the gale, and a joker is the whale, a flourish in his tail, such a funny, sporty, gamey, jesty, jokey, hokey-pokey lad is the ocean, oh. The scut all a-flyin', that's his flip only foeman, when he stirs in the spison, such a funny, sporty, Gamey, jesty, jokey, hokey-pokey lad is the ocean, oh. Thunder splits the ships, but he only smacks his lips, 
a taste of this flip. Such a funny, sporty, gamey, jesty, jokey, hokey pokey lad is the ocean. Oh, a vast stub, cried Starbuck. Let the typhoon sing and strike his harp here in our rigging. But if thou art a brave man, thou wilt hold thy peace. But I am not a brave man. Never said I was a brave man. I am a coward and I sing to keep up my spirits. And I tell you what it is, Mr. Starbuck, there's no way to stop my singing in this world but to cut my throat. And when that's done, tend to why sing me the doxology for a wind-up. Madman, look through my eyes if thou hast none of thine own. What? How can you see better of a dark night than anybody else? Never mind how foolish. Here, cried Starbuck, seizing Stubb by the shoulder and pointing his hand towards the weather bow. Markest thou not that the gale comes from the eastward? The very course Ahab is to run from Moby Dick? The very course he swung to this day noon? Now mark his boat there. Where is that stove? In the stern sheets, man, where he is wont to stand, his standpoint is stove, man. Now jump overboard and sing away, if thou must. I don't half understand ye, what's in the wind? Yes, yes, round the Cape of Good Hope is the shortest way to Nantucket, soliloquized Starbuck suddenly, heedless of Stubbs' question. The gale that now hammers us to stave us, we can turn it into a fair wind that will drive us towards home. Yonder, to windward, all is blackness of doom, but to leeward, homeward, I see it lightens up there, but not with the lightning. At that moment, in one of the intervals of profound darkness, following the flashes, a voice was heard at his side, and almost at the same instant a volley of thunder peals rolled overhead. Who's there? Old Thunder, said Ahab, groping his way along the bulwarks to his pivot hole, but suddenly finding his path made plain to him by elbowed lances of fire. Now, as the lightning rod to aspire on shore is intended to carry off the perilous fluid into the soil, so the kindred rod which it sees some ships carry to each mast is intended to conduct it into the water. But as this conductor must descend to considerable depth, that its end may avoid all contact with the hull, and as moreover, if kept constantly towing there, it would be liable to many mishaps, besides interfering not a little with some of the rigging, and more or less impeding the vessel's way in the water. Because of all this, the lower parts of a ship's landing rods are not always overboard, but are generally made in long slender links, so as to be the more readily hauled up into the chains outside, or thrown down into the sea, as occasion may require. The rods! The rods, cried Starbuck to the crew, suddenly admonished to vigilance by the vivid lightning that had just been darting flambeaux to light Ahab to his post. Are they overboard? Drop them over, for an aft. Quick! Avast, cried Ahab, let's have fair play here but we'd be the weaker side. Ye all contribute to raise rods on the Himalayas and Andes that all the world may be secured, but out on privileges.
Let them be, sir. Look aloft, cried Starbuck. The corpus hints. The corpus hints. All the yard arms were tipped with a pallid fire and touched at each tri-pointed lightning rod end with three tapering white flames, each of the three tall masts was silently burning in that sulfurous air, like three gigantic wax tapers before an altar. Blast the boat. Let it go, cried Stubb at this instant, as a swashing sea heat up under his own little craft, so that its gun violently jammed his hand as he was passing a lashing. Blast it. But slipping backward on the deck, his uplifted eyes caught the flames, and immediately shifting his tone, he cried, the corpus ants have mercy on us all. To sailors, oaths are household words, they will swear in the trance of the calm, and in the teeth of the tempest, they will imprecate curses from the tops of yard arms, when most they teeter over to a seething sea, but in all my voyagings, seldom have I heard a common oath when God's burning finger has been laid on the ship, when his mean, mean, tekla parson has been woven into the shrouds and the cordage. While this pallidness was burning aloft, few words were heard from the enchanted crew, who in one thick cluster stood on the forecastle, all their eyes gleaming in that pale phosphorescence like a faraway constellation of stars. Relieved against the ghostly light, the gigantic jet negro, Deku, loomed up to thrice his real stature and seemed the black cloud from which the thunder had come. The parted mouth of Tashtego revealed his shark white teeth, which strangely gleamed as if they too had been tipped by corpus ants, while lit up by the preternatural light, Queequeg's tattooing burned like satanic blue flames on his body. The tablet all waned at last with the pallidness aloft, and once more the Pequod and every soul on her decks were wrapped in a pall. A moment or two passed, when Starbuck, going forward, pushed against someone. It was Stubb. What thinkest thou now, man, I heard thy cry, it was not the same in the song. No, no, it wasn't. I said the corpus ants have mercy on us all, and I hope they will, still. But do they only have mercy on long faces? Have they no bowels for a laugh? And look ye, Mr. Starbuck, but it's too dark to look. Hear me, then, I take that masthead flame we saw for a sign of good luck, for those masts are rooted in a hole that is going to be chock-a-block with sperm oil, DC, and so, all that sperm will work up into the masts, like sap in a tree. Yes, our three masts will yet be as three spermaceti candles, that's the good promise we saw. At that moment Starbuck caught sight of Stubbs' face slowly beginning to glimmer into sight. Glancing upwards, he cried, See! See! And once more the high tapering flames were beheld with what seemed redoubled supernaturalness in their pallor. The corpus ants have mercy on us all, cried Stubb, again. At the base of the mainmast, full beneath the doubloon in the flame, the Parsee was kneeling in Ahab's front, but with his head bowed away from him, while nearby, from the arched and overhanging rigging, where they had just been engaged securing a spar, 
a number of the seamen, arrested by the glare, now cohere together and hung pendulous like a knot of numbed wasps from a drooping orchard twig. In various enchanted attitudes, like the standing or stepping or running skeletons in Herculaneum, others remained rooted to the deck, but all their eyes upcast. I, I, men, cried Ahab. Look up at it, mark it well, the white flame but lights the way to the white whale. Hand me those mainmast links there, I would fain feel this pulse, and let mine be against it, blood against fire. So, then turning, the last link held fast in his left hand, he put his foot upon the Parsee, and with fixed upward eye, and high-flung right arm, he stood erect before the lofty tri-pointed trinity of flames. Oh, thou clear spirit of clear fire, whom on these seas I as Persian once did worship, till in the sacramental act so burned by thee, that to this hour I bear the scar, I now know thee, thou clear spirit, and I now know that thy right worship is defiance. To neither love nor reverence wilt thou be kind, and e'en for hate thou canst but kill, and all are killed. No fearless fool now fronts thee. I am thy speechless, placeless power, but to the last gasp of my earthquake life will dispute its unconditional, unintegral mastery in me. In the midst of the personified and personal, a personality stands here. Though but a point at best, when soar I came, where soar I go, Yet while I earthly live, the queenly personality lives in me and feels her royal rights. But war is pain and hate is woe. Come in thy lowest form of love and I will kneel and kiss thee. But at thy highest come as mere supernal power. And though thou launchest navies of full freighted worlds, there's that in here that still remains indifferent. Oh, thou clear spirit, of thy fire thou madest me, and like a true child of fire, I breathe it back to thee. I on thy speechless, placeless power, said I not so? Nor was it wrong for me, nor do I now drop these links. Thou canst blind, but I can then grope. Thou canst consume, but I can then be ashes. Take the homage of these poor eyes, and shut her hands. I would not take it. The lightning flashes through my skull, mine eyeballs ache and ache, my whole beaten brain seems as beheaded and rolling on some stunning ground. Oh, oh, yet blindfold, yet will I talk to thee. Light though thou be, thou leapest out of darkness, but I am darkness leaping out of light, leaping out of thee. The javelins cease, open eyes, See or not, there burn the flames. Oh, thou magnanimous, now do I glory in my genealogy. But thou art but my fiery father, my sweet mother, I know not. Oh, cruel, what hast thou done with her? There lies my puzzle, but thine is greater. Thou knowest not how came ye Hence Caius thyself unbegun, certainly knowest not thy beginning, hence Caius thyself unbegun. I know that of me, 
which thou knowest not thyself, O thou omnipotent. There is some unsuffusing thing beyond thee, thou clear spirit, to whom all thy eternity is but time, all thy creative is mechanical. Through thee, thy flaming self, my scorched eyes do dimly see it. O oh, thou foundling fire, thou hermit immemorial, thou too hast thy incommunicable riddle, thy unparticipated grief. Here again with haughty agony, I read my sire. Leap, leap up and lick the sky. I leap with thee, I burn with thee, would fain be welded with thee, defyingly I worship thee. The boat, the boat, cried Starbuck, look at thy boat, old man. Ahab's harpoon, the one forged at Perth's fire, remained firmly lashed in its conspicuous crotch, so that it projected beyond his whaleboat's bow, but the sea that had stove its bottom had caused the loose leather sheath to drop off, and from the keen steel barb there now came a level flame of pale, forked fire. As the silent harpoon burned there like a serpent's tongue, Starbuck grasped Ahab by the arm, God, God is against thee, old man, forbear, tis an ill voyage. Ill begun, ill continued, let me score the yards, while we may, old man, and make a fair wind of it homewards, to go on a better voyage than this. Overhearing Starbuck, the panic-stricken crew instantly ran to the braces, though not a sail was left aloft. For the moment all the aghast mates' thoughts seemed theirs, they raised a half-mutinous cry. But dashing the rattling lightning links to the deck, and snatching the burning harpoon, Ahab waved it like a torch among them, swearing to transfix with it the first sailor that but cast loose a rope's end. Petrified by his aspect, and still more shrinking from the fiery dart that he held, the men fell back in dismay, and Ahab again spoke. All your oaths to hunt the white whale are as binding as mine, and heart, soul, and body, lungs, and life, old Ahab is bound. And that you may know to what tune this heart beats, look ye here, thus I blow up the last fear. And with one blast of his breath he extinguished the flame. As in the hurricane that sweeps the plain, men fly the neighborhood of some lone, gigantic elm, whose very height and strength but render it so much the more unsafe, because so much the more a mark for thunderbolts, so at those last words of Ahab's many of the mariners did run from him in a terror of dismay. Chapter CXX The Deck Towards the End of the First Night Watch Ahab standing by the helm, Starbuck approaching him. We must send down the main top sail yard, sir. The band is working loose and the lee lift is half stranded. Shall I strike it, sir? Strike nothing, lash it. If I had skysail poles, I'd sway them up now. Sir, in God's name, sir. Well, the anchors are working. Sir, shall I get them inboard? Strike nothing and stir nothing, but lash everything. The wind rises, but it has not got up to my table lands yet. Quick and see to it by masts and keels. 
He takes me for the hunchbacked skipper of some coasting smack. Send down my main topsail yard. Oh, glue pots. Loftiest trucks were made for wildest winds, and this brain truck of mine now sails amid the cloud scud. Shall I strike that? Oh, none but cowards send down their brain trucks in tempest time. What a hoorish aloft there. I would e'en take it for sublime, did I not know that the colic is a noisy malady? Oh, take medicine, take medicine. Chapter CXXI Midnight, the forecastle bulwarks. Stub and flask mounted on them and passing additional lashings over the anchors they're hanging. No, Stub, you may pound that knot there as much as you please, but you will never pound into me what you were just now saying. And how long ago is it since you said the very contrary? Didn't you once say that whatever ship Ahab sails in, that ship should pay something extra on its insurance policy, just as though it were loaded with powder barrels aft and boxes of lucifers forward? Stop. Now, didn't you say so? Well, suppose I did? What then? I've part changed my flesh since that time. Why not my mind? Besides, Supposing we are loaded with powder barrels aft and lucifers forward, how the devil could the lucifers give a fire in this drenching spray here? Why, my little man, you have pretty red hair, but you couldn't get a fire now. Shake yourself, your Aquarius, or the water bearer, flask, might fill pitchers at your coat collar. Don't you see, then? that for these extra risks the marine insurance companies have extra guarantees? Here are hydrants, flask. But hark, again, and I'll answer ye the other thing. First take your leg off from the crown of the anchor here, though, so I can pass the rope. Now listen. What's the mighty difference between holding a mast's lightning rod in the storm and standing close by a mast that hasn't got any lightning rod at all in a storm? Don't you see, you timberhead, that no harm can come to the holder of the rod unless the mast is first struck? What are you talking about, then? Not one ship in a hundred carries rods, and Ahab, I, man, and all of us were in no more danger then in my poor opinion, than all the crews in ten thousand ships now sailing the seas. Why, you King Post, you, I suppose you would have every man in the world go about with a small lightning rod running up the corner of his hat, like a militia officer's skewered feather, and trailing behind like his sash. Why don't ye be sensible, Flask? It's easy to be sensible, why don't ye, then? Any man with half eye can be sensible. I don't know that, Stop. You sometimes find it rather hard. Yes, when a fellow's soaked through, it's hard to be sensible, that's a fact. And I am about drenched with this spray. Never mind, catch the turn there and pass it. Seems to me we are lashing down these anchors now as if they were never going to be used again. Tying these two anchors here, flask, seems like tying a man's hands behind him.
and what big generous hands they are, to be sure. These are your iron fists, hey? What a hold they have, too. I wonder, Flask, whether the world is anchored anywhere. If she is, she swings with an uncommon long cable, though. There, hammer that knot down, and we've done. So, next to touching land, lighting on deck is the most satisfactory. I say, just ring out my jacket skirts, will ye? Thank ye. They laugh at long talks, so, flask, but seems to me, a long tail coat ought always to be worn in all storms afloat. The tails tapering down that way serve to carry off the water, do you see? Same with cock hats, the cocks form gable and eat troughs, flask. No more monkey jackets and tarpaulins for me, I must mount a swallowtail and drive down a beaver, so. Hello. Phew. There goes my tarpaulin overboard, Lord, Lord, that the winds that come from heaven should be so unmannerly. This is a nasty night, lad. Chapter CI Midnight aloft, thunder and lightning. The main topsail yard, Tashtego passing new lashings around it. Um, um, um. Stop that thunder. Plenty too much thunder up here. What's the use of thunder? Um, um, um. We don't want thunder. We want rum. Give us a glass of rum. Um, um, um. <laughs>